welcome to the Office 365 Developer Podcast, the only show focused on Office 365 development where Rich and I talk to the experts from all over the globe coding on the Office 365 Developer Platform. For more information on Office 365 Development, please visit dev.office.com and follow us on the hashtag Office365Dev. All right, well, welcome to episode 91 of the Office 365 Developer Podcast. I'm Richard and in case you didn't pick up from the last show, uh, this is a kind of a bittersweet show for us because the founder, Jeremy Thake, he's moved on to a new role. He's actually going to be responsible for a lot of things in the Azure marketing space and so less active in Office 365. Uh, the show is definitely going to go on. We have some great guests that we have lined up in the future, but uh, it's going to be kind of without Jeremy for now. Now, Jeremy will still be back on occasion when there's something related to the work he's doing in Office, but we wanted to make sure that we kept the purity of this being focused on Office 365 development. In fact, Jeremy's going to have kind of a, a presence in today's show because he's done some work already that uses some interesting things with Azure and Office 365, and I expect to see a lot more of that from Jeremy moving forward. So lots of great community updates for the week, and we'll jump right into that. And then we have a great guest today that we'll uh, talk about. So uh, first up is some of the work that's been done in the uh, patterns and practices space. If you're familiar with patterns and practices, it really started with uh, a lot of things around SharePoint. So as we moved into this cloud development model, how can we do a lot of the things that we used to do in SharePoint in this new way of doing development? But over time, PNP has really matured and and expanded into new areas. And so this week, there was a great PNP webcast with Stefan Bauer, Waldeck, and Vesa, where they talked about some of the JavaScript patterns for working with the Microsoft Graph. And if you're familiar with the Microsoft Graph, it, it is not just a SharePoint thing. Um, in fact, uh, it, it has only a few SharePoint things today. I can get to things like my files in OneDrive, but it has many other uh, advantages. So it allows me to go into things like all of the things that are in Exchange or all of the things that might be in my directory with Azure Active Directory and, and many other areas as well. Uh, but it's great to see PNP start to do a lot around kind of the broader Office 365 area. And so they have a really great uh, where they go into some of the things you can do with JavaScript in the Microsoft Graph, and they demonstrate a really nice little uh, mobile scenario of being able to look up contacts and get phone numbers. So definitely check that one out. And then Simon Yeager, who's been kind of a, just a, a workhorse when it comes to blogging and, and creating different community updates, he has three new updates over the last week. So he's been on a, a terror with uh, blogging, and these are some really good posts to take a look at. So one is he did an update on uh, how to work with the new Dialog API in an Office add-in. Now, this is something that's brand new. We announced it at Build, but the Dialog API is kind of a new shape for Office add-ins. It allows me to load up some sort of markup in a Dialog, or you might think of it as like a pop-up. Uh, but there's some really unique scenarios this can be used. You can use it just as an extension to your add-in, but it can also be used for authentication scenarios. And that's really one of the more powerful uses of this because authentication has been a challenge in Office add-ins for a long, long time. Uh, it's, it's really impossible to avoid 
a dialog or pop-up when you do authentication from an Office add-in. And so definitely take a look at what Simon's put together. Uh, we also did an Office dev show last week on Channel 9. I'll make sure that that's in the show notes. So um, definitely uh, check that out. One of the other posts he did was about using the Outlook Tasks API. So he talks about getting organized by being able to leverage these APIs. And so he goes into a lot of detail around those. And in the, the last post by Simon, this one's pretty unique, is the new ability to deploy Office add-ins through the new Admin Center. And so in the past, if you wanted to deploy an Office add-in, you basically, within your organization, you had to either use a special a special what we called an app catalog site in SharePoint, or you could use like a network file share. Uh, but now with the new admin center, there's a, a really nice way where we can distribute these add-ins for uh, different users of an organization. Um, kind of moving on from there, uh, some really interesting things around the effort around the Office UI fabric and mo- more specifically the Angular directives that uh, the community has been working on. So this has been a big effort by Andrew Connell. Waldex had a lot of work in this, as have other people. Uh, but there's some really great things regarding uh, the the NG Office UI fabric. So the new version 0.9 has been released. So Andrew Connell has a post about that. There are up to 27 directives in here and some really unique things. Uh, they've started to incorporate a lot of very powerful controls. So one of the new directives in version 0.9 is the people picker. So you can imagine how useful something like a people picker might be in some of your web development. Uh, speaking of the the NG Office UI fabric, uh, Waldeck did a, a good post talking about using the table component. Again, if you think about the complexities of building a table and making a table look really nice, uh, the the fabric and what they've done with these Angular directives makes this incredible easy, incredibly easy. Uh, and again, because it's a tabular type of thing, it's something that Angular is going to do a really good job of helping data bind it, and, and, and you can do some really powerful things. So definitely check that out. Again, they also, the NG uh, Office UI Fabric group, that community, has a great site where you can go test all the different directives. So you can um, basically just kind of see how they function, how you can manipulate them in different ways. So definitely check out the work that they've been doing. Another great post, uh, Chris Gibbons. Haven't seen Chris post in a while, but uh, did a a nice post about what's new in SharePoint 2016 around CSOM and REST, what new endpoints are there. So he goes through and kind of uh, documents all the different interesting endpoints that are there for SharePoint 2016. So if you're an on-premises SharePoint customer, you've done a lot of development around that, definitely check that out uh, to see what you can leverage from a CSOM and REST perspective. And then I mentioned that Jeremy's going to make kind of an interesting appearance on the show, and it's right now. Um, he he actually did a, a really cool post on using the new Azure functions with the Microsoft Graph. So if you watched Build, we announced Azure functions as a way to I, the way I see it is to modularize a, a block of code that you might want to use over and over. So this is a new platform as a service offering. So think about any sort of like repeated function you might you might want to do. You could incorporate that into an Azure function and be able to use it uh, over and over. And so one of the neat things that Jeremy did is he created an Azure function that basically used webhooks with your inbox. So anytime new mail would show up in your inbox 
that would trigger this Azure function to basically go and translate the, the email. So imagine if you're working in like a global organization with different languages, anytime something drops in your inbox, it could go and get that and make sure that that's translated to your um, ultimate language. So for me, I speak Texan, it would go into Texan or I guess English would be the better way to say that. So definitely check that out. It's a really cool sample. I want to try to get Jeremy on the Office Dev Show on Channel 9 to take a look at that and, and dive into it in more detail. So I know that like patterns and practices and the things that we've talked about on the show, we've done a lot of discussion around using web jobs. So think about like anything you might do in a web job, if it's something repeated, it might actually work really well as an Azure function. I think those have they'll go hand in hand really nicely. So if you're doing anything with like a web job or like a repeated type of thing, definitely check this out. I think it's a it's a cool thing and uh, you know again the powerful new features of Azure and platform as a service coming through. So the last update I'll point out is this week's Office Dev Show on Channel Nine. Uh, it's a really great show. I had the pleasure of having Vittorio Bertocci on. So you know Vittorio is Mr. Identity. He's known worldwide for all the work he's done around Azure Active Directory and how he enables developers through things like ADAL. And now uh, in this show, we talk about the new converged auth or what we call the V2 app model in Azure Active Directory and the new libraries they have for working with that. So there's a new library called the Microsoft Authentication Library or MSAL. And so um, it's a fantastic new library that makes it really easy to work with this concept of converged auth where you take consumer and commercial authentication apps and endpoints and converge it all into one thing. Um, it's, it's fantastic. It's a great show. I mean, you can't get a more definitive source than Vittorio. So definitely check that out on Channel 9 if you're interested in things like auth and working with the Microsoft Graph with either consumer or commercial. All right. Well, those are the updates for the week. Um, again, we'll continue to do this moving forward. So uh, we definitely want to uh, get all the community effort that people are doing in Spotlight. So if, you, if you're if you blogging around Office 365, let me know. I have most of the different kind of popular characters that Jeremy and I have featured. But if you're new to it or, or I haven't mentioned something that you've done, definitely reach out to me and let me know and we'll make sure that that gets showcased. All right, well, moving on to the show today, we have a fantastic guest. We have Sahil Malik. Sahil is one of those guys that I've looked up to quite a bit over the last few years. He's, he's a, a true developer, right? I mean, he's, he's a guy that is very active in a number of different uh, languages and platforms. So he's done a lot of work around educating people around how to work with things like Azure Active Directory to get authenticated through OAuth. But he's also on a lot of cutting-edge type of platforms. So he's doing a lot of work in things like Angular 2, Electron. Um, and so today on the show, we're going to talk about just in general what it means to be a developer with Office 365. We're going to talk about a lot of the work that he's done with Angular 2 and, and why he likes that and how kind of the transition's been from Angular 1 to Angular 2 for him. And then also a little talk about Cordova. That's kind of a, a love that both Sahil and I share. And so we talk a little bit about um, doing development in, in Apache Cordova for building on multiple platforms. 
So it's a great show. Again, uh, Sahil's someone that I've wanted to have on the show for a long time. And so he he jumped on this week. And so check it out and uh, look forward to seeing everyone next week. All right. Episode 91 of the Office 365 Developer Podcast. This is our first podcast without Jeremy. He's off in Azure land. But I am instead joined by a fantastic guest today, someone that I've been wanting to have on the show for a long time, and that is Sahil Malik. So, uh, Sahil, welcome. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you, Richard. How are you? Very good. Why don't you tell – I'm sure you're, you're a very familiar name in the Office 365 developer land, but why don't you give uh, the listeners that might not know you a little bit of introduction? Sure. Um, my name is Sahil Malik. I've, uh, I've been a developer for most of my adult life, uh, mostly in the Microsoft space. But for the past, I would say, five, six years, I've been extremely cross-platform. Uh, this ranges, you know – from native iOS to, uh, you know, definitely on the Windows side. And I've been doing a ton of Cordova and Electron and, you know, those sorts of platforms lately as well. So really excited about TypeScript, JavaScript, and, you know, this whole open web dev that is expanding to more than just web. And, yeah, in the Microsoft space, you know, the Azure AD and Office 365 as well. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, you... You, in, in a lot of ways, you follow the same path that I've taken. I've been in a developer forever and uh, a Microsoft developer forever. And you know now I've kind of found myself in this age of kind of, in a way, moving away from doing more things in .NET and doing things more in other languages, whether that's doing things, more things in JavaScript, Angular, Node. Uh, and it's been a fun, it's been a fun journey. Uh, so again, I think you kind of follow my path in a, in a lot of ways. Um, what tell us about your like mic, like pure Microsoft developer background? What sort of things were did you do a lot of things like like pure .NET? Were you doing SharePoint development? What sort of things um, were you doing kind of pure Microsoft in the past? Sure. So uh, you know, this is back. I started coding back when uh, I was a kid, and you know, in in DOS Turbo C, and that is that is when I you know started developing on the Microsoft platforms. Um, graduating to, you know, Windows 3.1 was my first main GUI-based experience I worked on. Uh, when I came to America, I came with two books, uh, you know, because there's only so much stuff you can bring. So I had to be very picky about what I could bring. So I brought the Beyond Starstrip C++ and uh, Charles Petzold Win32 API book with me. Uh, and so from there, basically, started working on MFC 4.2, ATL, COM, uh, then Darknet came around, VB6, I did that for a few years. Uh, and then, uh, you know, when when Darknet came around, just going through the successive generations of Darknet. So I used to be a big time, you know, data geek. Uh, so I was a C-sharp MVP for six years. I've written books on ADO.net and SQL Server. Uh, and then, uh, you know, when SharePoint 2003 was around, I started getting involved in the SharePoint side of things. And you know, moved over to SharePoint wholesale when they embraced .NET in in 2007, SharePoint 2007, and then from there on, you know, progressively started moving into you know, when when we have Office 365, I mean, I sort of question myself, what is an Office 365 developer, because it's really you know, any platform, and then you understand a few basic concepts, and there's a matter of calling web services and APIs. So, so I, I don't even know what an Office 365 developer per se is anymore, because you, yeah. I think that's cool. I mean, I, I like to think of an Office 365 developer as just a developer. 
you know, um, I didn't, I actually didn't like being labeled a, a SharePoint developer back in the day. Cause I, I felt like I was just a good developer and I, SharePoint was just like one of the tools in my toolbox. And, you know, now as we moved to Office 365, I'm not an exchange expert, but I know the APIs and I can go get the things done I need to in there. And so I think, um, I, I would, I would say I kind of have a lot of the same feeling you do from yeah. that standpoint. Yeah. I mean, there might have been something like a SharePoint developer earlier because you're writing things that others won't touch, like WSPs and all that. But yeah, as an Office 365 developer, you're, I think you're just a developer like any other developer. Cool. So how do you, you mentioned when you came over to the States, you brought a couple books with you. How do you learn in kind of this modern age where information is so like freely available? What, like how does, how do you learn these days? Well, you know, times have changed and the, the hard thing is that, you know, uh, I still, I'm still one of the old fashioned people who likes to learn a topic thoroughly. Uh, you know, there's a lot of, you know, that, that, you Google, you figure out a problem, and you copy-paste code and make it run. That, that frankly, scares me. Uh, but it is getting very hard to find a good comprehensive set of information that, you know, once you read and you feel comfortable that I know this topic. So, obviously, the source of information has changed. Uh, what I like, what the way I do a lot of my learning these days is videos. Uh, you know, be it Pluralsight that I have a few courses on and Channel 9 and it's certainly, you know, a bunch of things that you've recorded. The series that Sonia was doing to, you know, she left to, that sucks, more Sonia. Um, <laughs> yeah. We need to get shirts made, I'm telling you. I think they'd sell for real. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, when Jeremy left, I figured that, you know, uh, that our overall good looks content went up, but then Sonia left and now it's gone back down again. So anyway. <laughs> So, so yeah, I mean, you know, watching those videos and once I watch those videos, because I, I fly a lot, uh, so what I do is I download all those on my iPad and then I watch them at 2x the speed. I mean, it's gotten so bad now that when I, when somebody talks to me in 1x speed, I can't understand them anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so then I, and when I land, uh, you know, then I, I try things out and, and once I've tried things out and then I get a pretty good, you know, feeling that, that, that the topic once it's gone through my fingers is, is in my mind. That's cool. There, I, I don't remember. There was like a philosopher once that had some statistic that said you retain like 10% of what you read, 20% of what you write. Uh, and it went all the way up to like you you retain 100% of what you teach. And so I think that, it, you know, it, it speaks volumes when I talk to an MVP like yourself that um, that gets hands on, not only gets hands on building things, but actually produces a lot of training material. So tell us a little bit about some of the different kind of training things. I know you do some things for Pluralsight. Um, tell us some of the stuff that you've worked on in terms of training that's out in the community these days. Sure. So uh, I had been training, uh, you know, on C Sharp, uh, ADO.NET SQL Server from a fairly long time ago. But I'd say, you know, at any point I've been uh, more consulting than training, although I think one makes the other better. So I think, you know, like consulting is, if you're given a problem, you'll find the easiest way to solve it. But training really forces you to look into every corner of the product. So, and, and you know, you really need to know the product very well before you can teach it. So then from there, I've been doing SharePoint trainings for uh, many years, um, you know, thousands of hours of trainings on that. Then I, I also did, you know, videos on that on plural site and alternate places. Um, then recently I've been doing like uh, this 
last week I was in London and I did a workshop on Angular JS two. Um, so and it's so basically in the SharePoint Office three sixty five Azure AD space. My my last thing that came out was a Azure AD uh, course that I put together for Plural Site, and actually the way I pitched it to them was Azure AD and Office three sixty five. But uh, basically, they said that uh, you know Azure AD has got you know more implications than just Office three sixty five. And and I I think that makes sense because then I just made it pure Azure AD because you know and I I think an Office Azure Dev is going to find that helpful but I think a lot of others that start as they start moving to the cloud they're going to find Azure AD concepts useful anyway so yeah so that's the last thing that uh, you know video cost etc that I put online so Azure AD is an interesting one you know when we go around to things like hackathons or good old like. Hackfest partner type events. It always seems to be like auth is the area that that trips us up the most. Um, and and that team has continually tried to do more and more. In fact, this week on the the Office Dev Show, I actually have Vittorio who's who joins me, and we spend like forty minutes talking about auth and kind of what they're doing in in the V two model and the new libraries for all that. But like from your experience, what like how do you feel? Like we stand up against some of the other like internet identity providers. When you look at and that could even be all the way in the social realm, like like working with Azure AD versus working with like identity and Facebook. How do you kind of feel sure. the the difficulty differences? Well, uh, I mean, first of all, you know, like for those who have been following me for a while, they know that I don't mince words. Uh, if there's something that I don't like, I I speak up very openly about because I think that's the best way we're going to improve. Azure AD is one of those parts I feel that Microsoft can take a lot of pride on. Uh, identity and security is a is an incredibly difficult challenge because, you know, the example I like to give is, uh, you know, Norway and uh, North Korea are neighbors, you know. And when I say that, you're like, really? Come on. Yeah, there's one country in the middle called Russia. Uh, but on the internet, they are neighbors, uh, and on the internet, everybody is a neighbor of everybody else, and you don't see them. You know, Kim Jong Un could be in your laptop right now, and you don't know. And so, security is becoming incredibly, dif- uh, you know, important and also difficult because of all the standards that are coming in, and all these hackers that are trying to get in. And I think it's just not possible for a, for any organization to do all this themselves. And the other thing is that the, the the surface area is increasing. There's so many standards, so many platforms you need to support, so many scenarios you need to support. And I really think that Azure AD addresses them very, very, very well. Now, that doesn't mean that they can't improve on a few things, uh, but still, the, the fact that they've accepted standards, the fact that they are so cross-platform, the fact that they're open source, that in itself, and the fact that they're well-documented, I think that goes... Uh, quite a long distance, I feel. Cool. Well, we'll definitely. Uh, I want to hear more about some of the Angular two work you've done, and and I think some of those standards will play well as you get into things like that, because you know it. it we can't when we do some of like our our evolution of things like identity. Uh, we don't always have things like like modules and frameworks and things like that from like day one. And so I know that that's been something that I've run into in, in working with, with Angular 2. So I'll be curious to see your feedback on that. Yeah. Um, 
So I guess on that on that transition, um, you I know I've seen a lot of activity from you on the face tweet world of of work you've been doing around Angular two. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So Angular two, the, the logical successor to Angular one. Um, you know, obviously it's a I think it's it's a lot better than Angular one because it's faster, it's easier to learn, uh, and the best part it's TypeScript through and through. Uh, so I, I I love TypeScript. It's awesome. Um, specifically, you know, in the Office 365 space, I've been uh, you know trying to write my version of ADAL. Uh, so basically, like we've had an ADAL that was very Angular one, uh, but in my personal world, I've actually enhanced that ADAL JS to a to a to an extremely great extent. Uh, the reason being because. You know the ADLJS as it as it sits on the internet right now. Uh, you know it hard coded a few global variables like username, etc., which you know hard global namespace you shouldn't touch that. But I think the bigger problem was that it, it was strictly tied to access tokens. Uh, you know that if it needed to renew your session, it it relied on a little tiny iframe that was hidden, and that is how it sort of renewed your session. Uh, the thing is JavaScript. Uh, I think is expanding to a lot more than uh, than just web browser, single page applications. So why should we have a JavaScript library that is tied to only SPAs, single page applications, when in reality is we're doing a lot of Cordova, we're doing a lot of Electron. So basically in my private world, I had enhanced uh, ADLJS, you know, 1.x as it sits on the, uh, on the internet right now uh, a lot. So it would basically support Electron apps, it would support uh, Cordova apps, and it would support SPAs. Uh, and it would support refresh tokens and you know offline storage and encrypted offline storage with Cordova apps as well, because you need those for a, for a realistic uh, you know, native application. Uh, now, in 2.0, AngularJS 2.0, uh, you know, in 1.0 what we did is, uh, you know, uh, the, the technique was you would push in an interceptor and another thing that, you know, that the the kind of coding that I've been doing that it's like a lot of, you know, big framework and it needs to understand OAuth authentication that, you know, we write using MVC for 100% on-premises. And then if you want to transition over to the cloud, it, you know, set a flag and it understands Azure AD because at the end of the day, once you're authenticated, you're a user. Uh, so basically I'm trying to write the equivalent of that for, uh, for Angular 2 uh, and uh, it, it's a, it's a very different approach because in Angular one, the, the, you know, Adal inserted interceptors, and they would basically look for every call going. If there's a 401, they would redirect you to uh, you know a sign-in page, or if a call was going out, it would put an access token at the top. So the way you do that in Angular two is you know somewhat different because it's it's about services. So the HTTP client is also a service. And, uh, you know, you can modify what they call as a base request options. And in the base request options and base response options, you know, you, you, you enhance those classes. And basically, that when you bootstrap your application, you provide an instance of your classes using a factory. Uh, the, the actual protocol is actually very similar to actual blog, blog posts that you had put out, Rich, uh, literally the day when they talked that Angular 2 was in beta. I think you put out a code sample, but I've just taken that same code sample and you know turned it more into like a service and a library, and that's basically what I've been doing most recently. Nice. So I, I know that uh, with Angular One, you were kind of at least if you used eight out Angular, you were kind of locked into 
Well, I mean, you didn't have to necessarily do like a full routing application, but you you definitely were locked into using the routing that is was kind of I guess the first big routing module that Angular supported, or the mo most popular one. But I know that you know if you looked at other popular routing things like the state route stuff, um, like that's where it would start to break down. And and mm -hmm. you know if I know I'm I'm a big fan of using things like Ionic with Cordova. Yep. You know that was built all on the the state routes versus yeah. like the older type of routes, and and so it was it was it wasn't something that it was completely different things that you'd use. So what you're saying is by kind of approaching it this way, you have a consistent way that you can go from maybe a, a spa to you know something that might be a, a mobile application with Cordova to something else. It's um, that's kind of the approach you're taking. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. And you know, like when you get an access token and a refresh token, because the ADAL.js, the way it sits right now, doesn't understand refresh tokens. So uh, the way it sort of fakes refresh tokens, it, it does a hidden iframe and it extends your session based on that. And that would not work across, you know, multiple runs of a Cordova application or Electron application. So that was another reason that, you know, you want to store that refresh token, but you also want to store it securely encrypted on the device because, you know, I've been writing a lot of, lot of mobile applications in the enterprise space, and they would have products like Mobile Iron, et cetera, where, you know, they push the encryption tokens for security reasons. And, uh, you know, we want, we needed to work with that if we wanted that client. <laughs> so, you know, we we wanted to make sure that the encryption keys are something they control, and we can write some native iOS code, a plugin that allows us to encrypt the refresh token on the device. Uh, you know, so, and ADLJS as it sits on the internet didn't allow us to do that. So we had to enhance that a little bit. What is, um, like, if, when you look at authentication for, um, you know, working with Azure AD specifically, mm -hmm. you know, what, do you, what do you find is, like, the easiest way for someone to understand, like, an OAuth flow? Like, that's another thing to me. Like, when I, I, I've done it so long and done it so much that, it just seems easy to me. I mean, it's a redirect and then it's a post. Like if you if yeah. you can do a redirect and a post, you can do OAuth. But yeah. that I think when people start hearing tokens and you know doing all this stuff behind the scenes, they feel like it's a lot more complicated than it, it actually is. What do you yeah. what do you what have you found to be the best way to get someone to realize that OAuth isn't rocket science? It's it's basic HTTP op operations. You know, it's it's like once you know it, everything is easy. Uh, it's not. I think in our industry, it's not any. Nothing is difficult. It's just there's a lot to know. Uh, so you know, it, like it, I think in my plural side course, I've tried to break it down in a very logical progression. But the best way to think of it is, you know, like you try and think in like real world scenarios. For instance, uh, when you check into a hotel, uh, you know, you go to the front desk, they check your ID. That you're authenticating right there, sort of, right? But then they give you a key, a key to your hotel room. That's your access token. That's your token. You know, they've given you a token after they've authenticated you. And this token lets you do something, which is access the bar and access your room. Simple as that. That's OAuth. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you get through like a, a third flavor in there. Maybe the, the credit card is your consent by like signing. You know, maybe that's the consent side of things. But I, I like that. It's I've, I haven't heard that analogy before i just i just made that up totally <laughs> nice love it <laughs> yeah and uh yeah and then uh, you know then you have uh, another word that we hear a lot is like open id connect which is like, which oh what's open id connect i mean it, it, that's 
I think I've heard a lot of explanation there, but the one that made sense to me was, uh, you know, OAuth is a delegation protocol, authorization protocol, OpenID is OAuth, but being used as uh, an authentication protocol. But on top of that, you have a, a concept of scopes on top, which I think the 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 V two APIs make good use of, uh, and, and you know, basically that they have you know as additional step beyond that, where basically you can get some user information like the name, email, and so on and so forth, whatever profile information. So that's Open ID Connect. Cool. So back to talking a little bit about Angular two. Is mm-hmm. this was this like you mentioned that you really like the TypeScript component of this? That it's really built on top of TypeScript. Was this kind of your first major jump into TypeScript, or have you been working with it uh, a lot in the past? Uh, I've been looking at TypeScript for quite a while now, since since it was like one X something. But I was uh, you know a little hesitant uh, using it in my projects because. I figured it's an amazing language. Why aren't more people using it? Uh, but because nobody else was using it, you know, I didn't want to bet, you know, all our code on TypeScript. But then once I heard that Google and Microsoft had joined hands and they were, you know, building Angular 2 on TypeScript, I was like, okay, there's no reason not to use it. And, and you know, you know, you don't want to be the, it might be an awesome platform, but you don't want to be the only guy using it if you think long-term supportability. So, Angular 2 certainly, you know, is, I think today, if you're not doing TypeScript, you're doing it wrong. If you're writing JavaScript by hand, you're doing it wrong. So Angular 2, the best way to do is TypeScript. But in Angular 1, you could do TypeScript, but it felt a little bit like you were shoehorning TypeScript into it. Right. But Angular 2, I don't even think JavaScript. I just think TypeScript now. Yeah, I mean, in fact, if you look at some of the guidance on moving to Angular 2, they say, well, one of the steps, if you have a big Angular 1 application, is you can start to convert that to TypeScript. You, there's, there's certain things you can go through, but that TypeScript transition is one. The other big one, I, I think it was probably the biggest reason I veered away from TypeScript at first was you know, doing things client-side, you know, as you break them up. I mean, it, you're, if you think about like writing a, a .NET application, you wouldn't put, or you typically are not going to try to put like 20 classes in one CS file. You typically try to right. break those out. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, it might get compiled into one DLL, but yes. you tend to break those out. In the client-side world, you know, I saw myself, for, hey, for each one of these TS files, I mean, for those that are new to TypeScript, mm-hmm. basically TypeScript gets compiled to JavaScript. You don't actually run a, well, you, I guess theoretically you can run a website on TypeScript, yeah. but it, it's actually, it ends up compiling it anyway. Um, and so what I found myself is I ended up with like all these JavaScript files and I, I, I guess I wasn't savvy enough to go and find things that would help uh, like modularize and kind of like bring all those into your your page. And so I was like, man, I have yeah. to go reference like 40 things. I'd much rather just have like, you know, a file for my controllers, a file for my uh, my app. Yeah. Uh, and so that was probably my biggest uh, challenge at first in, in making yeah. that transition. And, and actually, let me add to that. You know, JavaScript is the sort of enemy of teams working together because you know, logically speaking, you want to split your code into multiple files because, you know, it doesn't matter if you're using Git or SVN, you know, optimistic or pessimistic locking in your source control. It just works better if you and I are not working on the same file at the same time because one side you got merged, the other side you have weights. Uh, but then what happens is that in JavaScript, if you split your code into multiple files. Uh, then what happens is that when the page loads, 
you cannot guarantee that the second file has loaded when the first file is calling a method in the second file. So typically what we did is we did like a minification bundling step, which broke AngularJS 1 uh, if you, you know, did it incorrectly. I think all of us have gone through that at some point. Mm -hmm. So what I really like about TypeScript is that, or Angular 2 with TypeScript, is that it, it it basically comes, or rather, you it forces you to pick you know pick a dependency loader, uh, like you know be it System JS, Require JS, or Webpack or Browserified. It forces you to pick one, and then in your dev lifecycle, you are using that all the time. And your eventual code you know might be minified or bundled, but you know in in debug mode when you're trying to run it, it works as you'd expect because the dependency. <laughs> They're they're, load, they're getting loaded properly, and and I think that alone is worth the price of entry. Not to mention there's so many other good things about TypeScript. Yeah, you know, in in, in a way, it kind of reminds me too of, I guess, .NET two when we introduced the they weren't it wasn't a web application; it was a website that we had in in .NET, and you could make a change and it would like compile it on the fly so that you could like. You know, you didn't have to go through the full build process every time you made a change. We've kind right. of veered away from that in .NET, but here with TypeScript, you can run that TypeScript compiler. You can run it in like a, a watch mode where it looks for changes, and it'll immediately go and recompile things for you. So it's a really rapid way to build, and it keeps things yeah. nice and organized. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah. it's really really nice from a development standpoint. Yeah, and, and it's amazing. The VS Code, uh, it just you know, makes your entire dev experience so much more pleasant. Uh, I, I think probably the, the biggest endorsement of TypeScript is Visual Studio Code is written using TypeScript, and it is a fantastic development environment. So is that what I was, I had a question for you later on, but we could cover it now, is is what what is your developer setup? What do you use for doing development these days? Um, I use a Mac uh, because... You know, the thing is, again, because I travel quite a bit, my choice was to either have a Mac or Windows or just a Mac. So I went with Mac uh, because, you know, if you're in a debug and iOS app, et cetera, you have to have a Mac. Mac. Um, so I have a Mac and then I have VMware Fusion and I virtualize Windows on it. Uh, and for a lot of things I do, I, uh, you know, I, I, I still don't do dev in Azure yet because snapshotting, et cetera, is very, very valuable to me and I need to be able to work when I'm offline. Though that is getting harder and harder with this, you know, Node Package Manager and all those things. Anytime you create a new Visual Studio project, it has to, you know, download things off the internet. And my my dev environment feels, you know, less stable than you know a Kardashian marriage because every time I start up on Visual Studio, it changes. Uh, but so I do a lot of dev on Windows with full fledged, you know, Visual Studio 2015, uh, and the kinds of things I do there are like. MVC projects targeting .NET 4.6, old-fashioned SharePoint projects. There's a lot of legacy code, et cetera, that always needs uh, maintenance and help, working with SQL Server. So those are things that I have a Windows VM, multiple Windows VMs for. But uh, I prefer that, you know, a lot of the front-end stuff, et cetera, that I do, and, you know, Cordova, Electron, all of those things uh, that I, you know, do them on my Mac using Visual Studio Code. Very nice. So, um, actually, you know, that's... Mm -hmm. There's one, sorry, one more thing I wanted to add. You know, so Cordova is one of the things that I think both you and I, we've been working on quite a bit. And Microsoft introduced some really good Cordova tools in Visual Studio proper. And I was like, you know, bummer, but I guess at Microsoft that they're going to target Visual Studio. 
But recently they also introduced amazing Cordova tools for Visual Studio Code. Uh, and basically, so that's what I use now. Yeah, in fact, for those of our listeners, if you're into Cordova, and I'm, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Cordova. I mean, almost any mobile thing. I've built for all mobile platforms, but if I have a choice of what I build in, it's usually going to be uh, Cordova, Ionic, Angular type of, of mixture of things. Um, and the, the great thing with these new tools is it can automatically attach debuggers in inside of Visual Studio Code. It can launch emulators. I mean, it's really um, a really nice experience, but you don't have this huge bloat that Visual Studio gave you. Because the I will tell you, when you install the, the Apache Cordova tools for Visual Studio, I mean, it's significant, the amount of things that it put on your machine. Yeah, yeah. Well, here here was the another issue that the Android emulator is basically a virtual machine. So running a VM inside of a VM, it, it you could run it, but it was unusably slow. Uh, so what I used to do is that I used to actually travel with an Android tablet. It made getting through airport security interesting. But you know, anytime I need to work with Cordova, I would physically run it on the device, and it would just the, the debugging was slow, and you know, but it was the better choice. But when I'm working pure on Mac with Visual Studio Code, uh, you know, I can run it in an emulator. And here's the best part. Uh, I, th I think there's a command that says taco, the taco CLI, taco tools for Apache Cordova. So npm install g taco CLI, taco dash CLI, and it'll install, uh, you know, so two parts. One is the taco CLI and the second is the Cordova extension. So you need to install both. So the taco CLI, one of the my favorite commands is taco space, install prerequisites of Prex, Android. And it just takes care of installing all the junk you need to make Android run, uh, like, you know, the ADB, SDK, JVM, all of that stuff that I don't understand. It just fixes it for you. Nice. Yeah. There's a, there's a really good build session for, again, the listeners. I'll put it in the show notes. It was Ryan Salva that uh, walks through and gives a nice full demo of the new tools in Visual Studio Code and some of the things that Sahil's talking about. Um, it's it's really good. It's also, to me, it was like a really good revalidation of the whole concept of separating things out. I think in the web world, maybe because you're looking at like partial views, certainly it makes sense to break out your views, but I would still end up with like, you know, like one controller's file when I was doing things without TypeScript. But when you look at when you look at kind of the the structure of building a mobile application, I guess it shouldn't matter, but it just really clicked with me when I started seeing TypeScript leveraged with Cordova. Like I could have every every mobile view could be contained with code with my view all in yeah. one nice little folder. Yeah, but here's actually one thing that's uh, really like sort of pissed me off recently. Uh, you know. TypeScript debugging used to work fine in iOS 8x, but recently they made some change to the uh, to the you know iOS emulator on on a Mac. It, it's only on a Mac anyway. That they broke TypeScript debugging. So if I wanted to Cordova and TypeScript on iOS, I can't. And that's uh, I mean imagine that when you're doing Angular 2, which is all TypeScript. So Angular 2 and TypeScript and iOS, you can't debug that anymore. So that's a. I, I hope that gets fixed soon. That's a good one. We'll uh, make sure we get that feedback uh, back into the 
the tooling team that's working on that. Yeah, they're, they're aware of it, but I think the change was actually introduced by Apple in the iOS emulator, actually. Doesn't, so. doesn't surprise me. You know, it's funny you mentioned carrying around. I still, to this day, uh, even as emulators have gotten better, I still, for the most part, prefer to use devices to debug on, with the one exception is I, I actually think that the iOS emulator is really snappy. Like it, yeah. I, don't, I don't know what they're doing differently. Maybe it's because it's not running on virtualization. Um, but it, to me, it just flies. I, other than like there are some limitations, like you can't use a camera, you can't use yeah. certain parts of the device. But um, I've been like you. I've been a guy that carries around uh, one of every type of device when I travel. So yeah. I'm a TSA friend as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they call me Best Buy when I go through TSA security. Nice. So, you know, you, you're like I am. I tend to prefer Cordova. I, I have my own reasons for why I prefer that over something like Xamarin. But I, I got to ask, since Microsoft acquired Xamarin uh, in this past month and we're starting to give it away for free, what kind of – what motivates you to embrace the Cordova side of cross-platform development versus something like Xamarin? Right. Okay, so this is actually a very interesting, uh, you know, conversation I have frequently with a lot of, you know, our our friends. Um, at the at the end of the day, it's a language. Uh, the, the language is the main difference. Uh, you know, people say that performance is a difference and all that. I, I honestly, I disagree. JavaScript engines have gotten so good that they sometimes are faster than compiled C sharp code, and certainly. C-sharp code with the overhead of mono, I mean, I don't think performance is, in, in your actual business logic, performance is not an issue. Now, if you're talking about performance of the UI elements, like when I tap on a button, how quickly does it respond? For that, you have things like native script, and you have other concepts that allow you to mix and match Cordova UI with native, where you really need native. But I feel like with platforms like Ionic, etc., you don't... I. I I don't find a lot of you know reasons where I need native. Now, if I was writing the next Boom Beach or Angry Birds, etc., uh, then I would want to go native. But in that case, I don't think Xamarin would be able to do those anyway. Now, I say this with a load of respect for the Xamarin guys. You know what they've built is absolutely amazing. But the other thing is that when I'm trying to build a UI, and assuming I'm not using Bootstrap because Bootstrap is too heavy. Uh, I feel that when I'm trying to create a UI using web-based technologies, maybe using Ionic uh, as a quick start, uh, it's just a lot easier to express myself in web-based technologies than to express myself in a subset of XAML or the forms designer that Xamarin has built. And the, the other thing is that Xamarin until now was extremely expensive and backed by a small company. Now that Microsoft has bought it, that reason has gone away. It's free. It's it's backed by a huge company. Uh, but I feel that, you know, over time, as Xamarin improves, and let's say Xamarin gets to a point that is you know, as good as or better than Cordova, even then, I think it's going to boil down to a choice of language. And as much as C Sharp is better than JavaScript, I don't think C Sharp is that much better than TypeScript. Um, you know, I say this with deepest love for C Sharp. I love C Sharp. It's an awesome language. It's the best language I've ever used. But TypeScript isn't that bad, and and it's it's very dynamic. Like you know, the one advantage that TypeScript and JavaScript have is that they can load more stuff on demand, uh, whereas C Sharp requires a compilation step. Uh, so, and then there are scenarios that you know Cordova allows you to do. So I recently came across this amazing project called Code Push, and what that lets you do is that it basically lets you zip up your update to your application 
using a zip file. Uh, and then you can just push that zip file as a bullet onto your app. It downloads it, and it completely replaces its Cordova, you know, the WW folder. The app has the ability to replace the WW folder without having to go through app stores. Oh, wow. That's amazing. And, and you know, now, now imagine that, you know, there are, I think between us developers or people that are in a mobile platform, there are two very distinct separate worlds. One is the public app store. Uh, and the second is, you know, the enterprise applications, and that's the space I am more in. And in the enterprise app store, if you walk up to a client and you say that I'm going to write this app for you, it's going to take me six months, you're going to pay me lots of money to do this, but I'm not sure, you know, Apple might reject your app. I mean, what do you think the reaction will be? You know, like, would you pay for a product for six months knowing that the thing could get rejected at any point? Versus if I say, I have an app, it's already in the app store, and we can push your specific functionality immediately. And oh, by the way, if you need an update to it, you don't need to wait two to four weeks before your update shows up on your app. It's just, you know, pushed out instant. You know, enterprises, they want control. Uh, you know, they are control freaks for a very good reason. And I think that's another reason that I think Cordova, uh, you know, okay, if one day Apple wakes up and it says that we're disabling the UI web controller, then Cordova, Cordova will die. But I don't think they'll do that because uh, if they do that, the the whole enterprise space that Apple would so love to get into, they'll just move over to Android wholesale. Yeah, I think we're we're definitely safe there. I mean, it's, um, you know, I, I'm kind of, I have a, the same kind of, perspective i think it comes down to a language choice you know on occasion like i'll get to the point where i make well you know i'm going to do something that's really specific on the device it's going to be easier to do do that in uh in something like xamarin that uses like the native assemblies but then you then you go out and you find a plugin i mean and or if i guess if if it came down to it, you could always build your own plugin for Cordova. Although I've never had to actually build one of my own, I've always been able to find something. Even really complex device things, I tend to be able to find a, a plugin for. Yeah. Well, I had to build one for a proprietary security platform once for uh, storing encryption keys. Uh, but yeah, the reasons are far and few in between to have to write your own plugin. Absolutely. So. Awesome. Well, we're um, we're running out of time. I wanted to ask you one kind of just for fun question is, you know, you are one of definitely one of, uh, you know, in terms of like Microsoft valued developers, you you are one that isn't shy to give us feedback. So I'm, I, this is something I'm going to be doing new on the podcast when I talk to uh, people outside of Microsoft is if you had like like your wish list, like one wish, if a genie came down and said, hey, you get one wish for how, what Microsoft does next in like the developer platform or Office 365, like what, what would your one wish be? Yeah. So I want to set the record straight that, you know, even though uh, I might be the loudest in criticizing Microsoft. I want to say that it's all for love of Microsoft. And uh, I still think that this is a company where you can literally scream and some employee listens to you on a Christmas Eve. Uh, Apple doesn't do that. Oracle certainly doesn't. They might sue you in return. I don't know. <laughs> so, but, but Microsoft takes the feedback and improves on it. Um, I mean, I, I think this open source direction that Microsoft is headed on is amazing. Uh, and I wish they had done it a lot earlier, uh, the cross-platform open source. It's a fantastic time to be a developer. 
Uh, I just wish they also did the same for knowledge. As in right now, I feel that a lot of knowledge is push coming out of Microsoft, but they, they should, I think, foster an environment where it's like peer-to-peer. And I think they do that, but they need to do more of it. Uh, not, like right now, there's a lot of Channel 9, et cetera, a lot of trainings that Microsoft pushes out. But I think a, a third-party marketplace on this, encouraging that in, you know, a self-sponsored, not Microsoft-sponsored, not Microsoft money, but a self-sponsored because customers want good third-party, uh, you know, impressions and feedback. Uh, and I think that would be very valuable because then customers tra- trust things uh, more, uh, you know, because, you know, it's like if you come as a, you know, car salesman and you say, my car is awesome. Of course, you're going to say that. Uh, the second thing I would say on a more technical level, I think ADLJS, you guys are sitting on an untapped gold mine. Um, and, you know, th- when we talk about Cordova apps, when we talk about Electron apps and the fact that JavaScript is is not just a browser-only language, uh and I really think that that library is an untapped gold mine and making things easier for developers over there and enhancing that, bringing up to TypeScript, AngularJS 2, and cross-platform, I think that would pay dividends, really. Cool. Well, I know that um, on the first front, you know, we're, I feel like we're making good traction there. You know, I'm starting to see, like, a lot of our you know, documentation and knowledge bases, like transitioning even into Git. I know that like things like Office JS updates that they did for Excel and Word, they yeah. started to becoming like, and, and you could go find them before we even announced it. They were in public repos. We, we just, we didn't broadcast them really loudly, but, um, you know, we tried to put the documentation in there and, and taking feedback, uh, you know, things like seeing .NET get out on Git to where people can submit you know, pull requests and uh, issue, you know, put in their issues directly into there. So I, I, I'm optimistic. I think we can achieve that. So um, you know, I, I think those are, are good, good targets to shoot for. Good, good. Well, yeah. Must well, be fascinating working for Microsoft. It is. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's definitely a different Microsoft than it was when I first started. Um, it almost feels like in a way we're, we're starting to become more a, uh, and ask for forgiveness, like just go and act and, and do what's right for developers and ask for forgiveness later. Whereas in the past, it felt like, you know, hey, I have something that'll be really helpful. Oh, wait, we need to send it through like 16 reviews. And oh, we can't put it open source because, That's you know, crazy. yeah, it was, it's, it's a much different world. So, um, absolutely. Yeah. Well, hey, thanks so much for being a, a guest on the show. I'm going to have to get you next time you're in Redmond. I know you travel a ton, but next time you get to Redmond, we'll have to have you on the, the Office Dev Show, and we can uh, do some cool coding on uh, in a video. But um, it's this is like I said, it's been you've been a, a guest that I've been wanting to have on for a long time. So super excited to have you be like our first one without Jeremy. So thank you. Awesome. It's been a pleasure. Well, thanks a lot. Where where can people find you? Do you, do you, where do you blog at? What's your Twitter handle? And uh, we'll go from there. Uh, Twitter is uh, Sahil Malik S A H I L M A L I K, uh, or you just go to my website, which is winsmarts.com, and you'll find you know my LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter over there. But I don't really blog much anymore. I should, I guess. But uh, but you know tweets or videos, etc. You, you'll find me making noise on Twitter as long as you don't mind the jokes. <laughs> cool. Well, we'll uh, we'll make sure we have those in the show mo- show notes. And thanks again for your time today. Been a pleasure. Thank you.